Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We will be back in 1 Peter chapter 4 in just a few moments. Read verses 1 through 6. Uh, I find it challenging sometimes at uh, the things I complain about. I don't know about if, if you feel that way about yourself. The other day I didn't sleep too well, and I said something to my wife about not sleeping too well, and I, I said something about you know, my back was a little stiff, and, and, and I just found myself complaining about little things. In fact, I can't remember the last time I've complained about a big thing. I think for most of us that might be true. Our, our complaints and our frustrations happen around little things that sometimes we can fix or sometimes we can't, and, and, and we find a way to complain. And, and I was reading a book, finished reading a wonderful book entitled The Preacher's Catechism by Lewis Allen. And he referenced a story that helped put my complaining in perspective. He referenced a pastor named William Gadsby, He was a 19th century pastor in uh, England, and he preached about 12,000 sermons in his life, traveled, walked, preached, preached multiple times on Sundays, preached to different congregations, served the Lord, and for 25 years of his ministry, he did all of that while caring for a mentally ill wife who at times would tear his sermon notes up, sometimes she would burn his sermon notes. Sometimes she would act out in semi-violent ways toward him. And during that entire time, he still pastored, he still loved, he still preached, he still cared for her and cared for his congregations. Sometimes it's helpful for us to just put some things in perspective. The reason I share that is because this sermon, this passage of Scripture, highlights a particular theme in the book of 1 Peter. Peter has let us know that suffering is a part of of Christian experience. It's something we should anticipate and expect. And the way we handle it should be Christ-like. And Peter gives us that indication in, in this passage of Scripture. And suffering might be the occasion, the context, but what Peter gets at in these six verses is he lets us know what Christ-centered conduct looks like. And so we're going to look at three characteristics of Christ-centered conduct that reflect on the occasion of suffering or how suffering kind of drives that. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we work through the sermon. Read along with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And again, Peter's made note of this multiple times throughout the letter. Jesus suffered as our example in chapter 2, as our substitute in chapter 2, as our Savior in chapter 3. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So here's the first characteristic of Christ-centered conduct. It's this, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Peter uses a specific phrase when he says, Jesus suffered, and so we are to be likewise in our thinking. We're to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had about his suffering. Look at verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He's telling us to think the same way about suffering that Christ thought about it. Have that same perspective. Have that same motivation. Have that same aim. Why should we do that? Well, well here's the reality. Jesus suffered to deal with sin. And if you think about it, Jesus embraced the cross. He didn't run away from it. Jesus embraced our sin in the sense that he went to the cross knowing that he would bear our sin. And knowing what that would cost, he still went there. Tell me I'm going to have to face the cross and face the sin of the human race on my shoulders. I'm likely to run away like Jonah tried. Jesus didn't do that. He went there. Why did he go there? He went there to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer, to be our example. And Peter draws from that model of Jesus who went towards suffering to deal with sin ultimately. And he says to us as Christians, the same way Christ thought about suffering is how we're to think about suffering. And here's where the contrast comes in or the difficulty comes in. We have a tendency... To think the opposite about suffering that Christ does. I know if I have a headache, I'm going to go pop some Excedrin. Because I want that headache to go away. I don't like the pain in my head. Now, that's a, that's a silly example. But we have a tendency to say, hold on a second. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be maligned. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to go through difficulty. You can give that cancer diagnosis to someone else, God. You can give that bad neighbor to somebody else. God, it'd be really great if you let me change families. You know, because the black sheep in my family are really causing me a lot of problems. And, and you know what? I, I, I don't like this. I'm suffering. It's not, it's not nice. And, and, and what happens is we try to get away from suffering. Rather than have the attitude that Jesus said, he's not saying we're to go make ourselves suffer. That's not his point. But he's saying we have the same attitude that Christ had about suffering, which is embracing it because God has a purpose in the suffering that we have. What's the purpose? What, why should we arm ourselves? By the way, it's a military term. Uh, Peter is saying take up arms. Make sure that you are prepared. If you're a soldier and you go out without a weapon, you're in a lot of trouble. And what Peter is saying is, as Christian soldiers, we're to go out with the same attitude of Christ. We're to arm ourselves with this attitude. Why? Because God wants us to not live bound to sin. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, now Peter's not saying that your suffering means that you stop sinning. If we read that loosely or uncarefully, then that may be what we take away from it. What he's saying is this, is that suffering, if if we are willing to suffer for our sin, or excuse me, if we were willing to suffer in light of our righteous living, then we are really ready to do battle with our sin. And we're ready to put it away, to cast it away. In the context, Peter's talking about suffering in light of living as a Christian against a pagan Uh, pagan culture. The suffering he's talking about in this particular instance is the suffering that would happen when a Christian lived distinctly and uniquely. 
And what Peter's saying is if you're willing to be mocked, if you're willing to be maligned, if you're willing to be beaten and suffer and persecuted because your Christian values tell you to live a certain way and culture's values tell you to live a different way and you're willing to accept mockery and shame because you're a follower of Jesus, Peter's point is this. If you're willing to go through suffering to act righteous and walk righteous, then you're ready to do, do battle with sin. In other words, you're ready to put sin outside of your life. And this is a beautiful picture. It's a recognition that when we own what God has brought our way and we own it with his attitude, it's a willingness to say, it's about you, Lord, and not about me, which is the whole point. Look at verse two. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. What's the whole purpose of our Christian existence? It's to live for the will of God. Sometimes I've had this thought in my mind. I've lived a pretty blessed life. I haven't had major experiences of suffering or difficulty. And maybe you're the same way. Maybe you've gone through life and for the most part, yeah, it's not been perfect. And you can certainly point to some valleys, but it's not been terrible. What's the, what do we do with this? How do we you make sense of that? In light of this idea that we're supposed to embrace suffering and, and learn from it to grow in Christ, what do we do? Here's the point. The point is that we live for the will of God, not for ourselves. The aim is not that we go out and look for a battle to fight, look for a difficulty, look for a suffering. There are plenty of them that are coming our way. But the, the point is that we live for the will of God. And when we live for the will of God, there might be some sufferings that come our way. There might be some shame or some malicious talk. We'll see that later in the text that come our way because we live for Christ. But the aim of embracing, of arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ is to arm ourselves with the will of God. To, to focus on the will of God, to do what God says, to care more about what God wants for us than we care about what we want for ourselves. That's the point. And that also means that we look a lot more like Christ than we look a lot like ourselves. Trevin Wax put it this way in his book, Subverting Caesars. He said, the king of Israel did receive a crown, one full of thorns that only added to the agony and shame of the Roman crucifixion. The most embarrassing and revolting form of execution ever devised. Ultimately, it is the cross that turns the world's wisdom upside down and redefines our notions of success. We Christians hold up that ancient form of torture as our most beloved symbol of victory. It was in his excruciating death that Jesus was reconciling the world to God. Followers of Jesus should not equate its success with a list of merits on a page. The marks of our Savior were nail scars in his hands and feet. The marks of the apostle, he's writing about the apostle Paul, was the whip-induced tearing of the flesh of the back. The mark of Jesus' followers is the suffering that one endures after taking up the cross and following him. The implication is this. If you and I live our lives as a follower of Jesus, if we embrace our God-given mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Christ, if we make the pattern of our lives a pattern of worship, learning, serving, and replicating the life of Jesus and others, if we say there's nothing else that I'm going to do that is more important than me following Jesus and leading others to follow Jesus, Peter is saying to us that we can expect some difficulty along that path. 
We can expect an enemy, a Satan who hates us. We can expect people who don't like that. We can expect people to be offended by the truth that we share about Jesus. We can expect people to shame us, to mock us. And here's the reality. If that's what happens, then we ought to be willing to say, so be it. The marks of my Savior are the marks of suffering. And if that indeed is the path that I have to follow, then that's okay. We should embrace the attitude that Jesus had. We should arm ourselves with the same mindset that Jesus had about suffering. A second characteristic of Christ-like conduct, Christ-centered conduct is this. Distance yourself from your sinful past. Distance yourselves from your sinful past. Notice what it says There in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the human passions. There's a contrast. And then he goes on in verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, in passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter's saying that there should be a difference in the way we live now. As followers of Jesus, we should live in a way that doesn't look like the way we used to live or doesn't look like the way others live now in terms of sinfulness and wickedness. We should live distinctly. So we should distance ourselves from our sinful past. The things we used to do, the things we used to find joy in, or not really joy, happiness, fulfillment, pleasure in, those things that we know are sinful, we need to move away from. We need to live differently. We need to look differently than that in our past. He goes on to say, but they, excuse me, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. What Peter's saying is, if you as a Christian look differently than you used to look, then your friends you used to have are going to treat you differently than they used to treat you. And think about it this way. If, you're, if your normal pattern of life was to go out on a Friday night and get drunk with a bunch of buddies, you can do that. You have the freedom to do that in our nation. It's wrong, it's sinful, but you can do that. And then if you decide you're going to follow Jesus, and because you follow Jesus, he redeems that part of you, and you know that going out and getting drunk with your buddies on a Friday night is not what God would be pleased with, You change that behavior, say, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to do something productive with my Friday evening. I'm going to spend it with family. Or I'm definitely not going to go get drunk. Then what's going to happen? What do they do? They don't say, hey, man, right on. Good job. I'm so impressed with you. That's fantastic. I think I'm going to join you in your good behavior. And what do they do? They say, "Uh, what, what happened to you, man? You're sucking the fun out of life. What's the deal? You know, you need to give up that, that, that dream of your life being great on a Friday night. Come join us. And they mock and they shame and they malign. Why? Because misery loves company. That's the short end of it. Sinners like to sin, but they don't like to sin by themselves. You do realize that. Sinners like to sin with other people. I don't know why it makes us feel better when somebody else sins with us, but it does. I mean, think about complaining. Nobody likes to complain by, their, by themselves. But boy, if I could get you to complain with me, we can just have a complaining session. Right? But if you, if you complain to somebody and they say, you know what? I'm really sorry that that's going bad. Can we pray about that right now? Man, that should... Can't complain anymore. 
right? We like that, as humans, we like that commiseration together. Well, what Peter's talking about is when we distance ourselves from our sinful past, those that we used to live that way with no longer like the way that we're behaving. And he gives a pretty strong list of things that the Christians he's writing to used to do. It's a pretty serious list, by the way. He uses words like sensuality or debauchery. That's, that's open, kind of flagrant sexual immorality. He talks about passions, which is lustfulness, desiring and craving things that may be good in the, in, in the way God designed them, but des, craving them in a, in a way that is adulterous or that is illicit in a way that's sinful. He talks about drunkenness. That word is only used here in this instance in the New Testament, and it basically is what it means. It's like going around and habitually being controlled by alcohol. It's, a, it's the state of drunkenness. It's not as if you drink one too many, you know, glasses of wine once in a while, it is a pattern of drunkenness in, a, in your behavior. Orgies, that's exactly what it sounds like it is. I mean, that is, that is a party where sexual immorality is kind of the standard, and that has happened for eons in human experience. Drinking parties, that is exactly what it sounds like. A bunch of people getting together and getting drunk together. And then he adds in lawless idolatry, which is this idea of, of going and worshiping deities as, uh, or these practices being practices that would worship deities. And by the way, the primary pattern of all of these behaviors in the first century where Peter was writing to would have been to people who the way that they worshiped their gods was to engage in orgies and drinking parties and getting together and doing shameful things. It was a part of their worship. In fact, one of the reasons why Christians were so distinct and Christians suffered is because they were considered shameful to their culture. Tacitus a Roman historian said this about Christians. He said that they have a hatred of the human race. Ah, that's weird. We as Christians are supposed to live with love and compassion toward other people. The early Christians did. The reason Tacitus said that is because the early Christians, when they turned their allegiance over to Christ, when they followed Jesus... The pattern, say, in Ephesus or, say, where Peter is writing to, the, to this region of Galatia, the pattern on a Saturday was to join everybody in, 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 the, in the worship of the emperor or in the worship of Jupiter. And what they would do, they would all get together. They would all bring their drink. They would all bring their, their, their wicked ideas, their immoral behaviors. They would all join together in these big, giant parties, and they would engage in all of these wicked activities. And what happened was Christians came along following Jesus and said, can't live that way anymore. I'm not going to live that way anymore. It wasn't just a, a part of, you know, say their group culture. A few buddies go do these wicked things. This was a part of society. Society gathered together. It would, it would almost be like this. It would almost be like if we as Christians said, we're not going to sing the national anthem. I'm just going to say that that is an allegiance to a foreign god. It's not. But if we said that, we would be like, what? Why are you not singing the national anthem? That was how culturally normal it was to go out and engage in all of these wicked, idolatrous, sinful behaviors. And the Christians came along and said, my allegiance is to Jesus. We're not going to do this. We're not going to participate in this. We're not going to live this way. We're not going to do these things. 
And so Peter's saying very real to them, they're going to malign you. There are people that are around you that are going to look at you and say, hold on a second, we don't like you anymore. You're, you're a fuddy-duddy. You're, you, you take the fun out of life. And by the way, if you don't think this is where we're headed in our culture, you're sadly mistaken. If you and I as followers of Jesus simply adopt a biblical view of human sexuality and gender, if that is where we make our stand and say, listen, what the Bible says is what, I, what is true, and I'm going to hold on to biblical truth, if that's what we adopt, I promise you we're on a pattern as Christians to be maligned, to be scorned, to be mocked. Some of you may not be hired for certain jobs. Some of you may damage your careers because you hold a biblical view of sexual ethics. Some of us may be mocked and shamed publicly. I mean, so that kind of stuff's already going around. If we don't hold the politically correct line that culture says, but we hold a biblical line, we can expect mockery and we can expect to be publicly shamed, to be blackballed. Those things are on the way. But you and I as Christians have an obligation to make sure we line up with Christ in our views and our values, not with culture and with the world. Peter's telling us, hey, this is a way to be prepared, to be ready, distance yourself from your sinful paths. Now, some of you, you're sitting here and you're watching, you're like, well, you know, I quit drinking when I trusted Jesus to be my savior. That's done. That part of my life is over. And I want to tell you, praise God. Some of you are saying, my immoral behavior was done when I trusted Jesus. I no longer chase other women. I no longer live in a way that, that is patterned after sinful behavior. And I would say to you, praise God. But I, I think we've got to be very careful in our day and age, in our culture, that some of these sinful behaviors we can hide I may not be able to hide an adulterous relationship or an illicit party where I'm going around with other people and living in a debauched way. But with television and with smartphones, there are so many ways that I can hide my lusts and so many ways that you can hide your lusts. And if we're not careful, what we will do is instead of saying, you know, I'm not living that way publicly anymore. But I'm holding on to those things privately. I'm nurturing them privately. What Peter says, when he includes lust in that list, is he says, listen, those things have got to be separate from us. We've got to do whatever it takes to not allow the sinful wickedness that comes through whatever streaming channels we have, whatever opportunities we have on our smartphones, whatever it is, we've got to make sure those things don't take over our lives. We've got to set them out and away from us so that we can follow Christ in our thought life and in our behavior. Say, eh, does that really happen? Yeah, it happens. Let me illustrate it this way. I heard one time that there was a, a duck flying north. It wasn't the wintertime. It, it was, it was the, the beginning of spring, and that duck flew north, and that duck looked down, that wild duck looked down and said, man, there's a pond. That looks like a really great place to be. It's a pond, and there's a farm. And that duck, instead of flying with its compatriots, on to where it was supposed to go, it flew down to the pond and said, I like this place. And, and stayed there for a day or so and found a lot of food sources. It, it, it was adopted into the farm family. And so it had a chance to, to eat all the farm food. And, and it kind of stayed there all throughout the summer uh, to the early fall. And 
he looked up one day and saw his duck buddies flying south from the winter. Thought, I better join them. He started to, to go out and, and fly up, and all of a sudden he realized he couldn't fly like he used to could fly because he got fat and happy. Because he got lazy being in a place he shouldn't be, not with his family, not with his buddies, not where he ought to be, but he, but he stayed around sin too long. i tell you something, folks. When we are to distance ourselves from our sinful past, we've got to be very careful that we don't let sin seep in and make us spiritually lazy. It'd be worth our while to take a look at any areas of our lives that we are tolerating sin, that we're nurturing a sinful behavior rather than putting it to death. What Peter tells us, he says to us, listen, we need to be willing to put it to death, put it in our past. Make sure it's in the rearview mirror, not a part of our daily conduct and behavior. Distance yourselves from your sinful past. Here's a third characteristic of Christ-centered conduct. Prepare yourselves for future judgment. Prepare yourselves for future judgment. Verse 5. But they, that is those who malign and mock. And by the way, this ought to encourage us at the outset as followers of Jesus. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Let me say this with abundant clarity. The Bible is a book about hope and good news. The gospel is good news. It is good news that if you will put your faith and trust in a living Savior, when he died on a cross and rose from the dead, and sitting at the right hand of God, that God will forgive and cleanse you, bring you into a relationship with himself, and give you eternal life. That is good news. But for that good news to be true, and that good news to be real, and that good news to be accomplished, more has to happen. Judgment has to happen. There has to be an opposite. There has to be a contrast. When Jesus went to the cross, he took judgment. We don't get a free pass into heaven because God likes us. We get into heaven because God has forgiven us. And in order for our forgiveness to be real, Jesus took our punishment and judgment on the cross. And that means that anyone who rejects God's offer of forgiveness and eternal life is in danger of experiencing God's judgment. Now, now where that is encouraging for us as Christians is to remember that because God is holy, righteous, good, and wonderful, if we're on His side being forgiven and redeemed, we're not going to experience His judgment one day. But listen, all those who hate us, all those who despise biblical values, all those who don't have anything to do with Jesus, verse 5 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Folks, there's coming a day when God will make all of those things that are wrong in this world right. When every person is going to stand before him and give an account. That's going to happen. That's encouraging for us because if our account's been settled and Jesus has taken our judgment, then judgment has occurred, not to us, but on behalf of us so that we can enter into a relationship with the living God. That's glorious. But we need to prepare ourselves for judgment. Notice what he goes on to say. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And don't get confused by that verse. If we're not careful, then we're going to read that in light of an earlier verse in chapter 3 and think that, uh, that Jesus wants us to preach to those who are dead. 
that, that's not what it's talking about. I think the clearest way to read verse 6 here is, is that Peter is saying the gospel was preached to those who were alive. When they were alive, they trusted in Jesus, and now they're dead. In other words, what he's saying is the people who received Jesus are now no longer here. They're no longer with us. They've died. They've gone on to be with God. And what that means is that they were judged in the flesh, but now they live in the Spirit of God. It's not about preaching the gospel to people who are, you know, in some kind of holding place. It's simply the reality that those who have gone on before, they trusted in Jesus. Now they're dead, and so they're living with God. They're living in right relationship with God. What that means is that every person is going to face judgment. A couple of weeks ago... We passed out a little uh, bookmark. It, it had at the top, who's your one? And I asked you to decide on a person that you know needs either a relationship with Jesus, you know they're lost, or you're concerned about them being lost, or, or you think they're not right with God. It asked you to put their name on that, that card. And I hope that you've been praying for them. There, there are some names on my list that I've been continuing to pray for. The reason I reference that is because you need to hear this. We all need to hear this. Every single person that is walking on planet earth, that has walked on planet earth, will stand before a holy God one day and face judgment. No one gets out of that. I don't get out of that. You don't get out of that. They won't get out of that. And we need to make sure we're ready to face judgment. For those of you that are listening, let me say that that means clearly you need to have a relationship with the living God. If you're under the sound of my voice and you've not trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then let me assure you that one day you're going to stand before holy God and he's going to look at your life and he's going to see if your life was righteous or unrighteous. And it doesn't matter how good you were. If you have any unrighteousness, he's going to judge you as a sinner. And you're going to stand before holy God and and you're going to have to give an account. And I promise you, your goodness isn't going to be good enough because God only has one standard. And it is utter, absolute, holy perfection. And none of us meet that standard. So for many of you listening, for some of you listening, the answer for you in preparing yourselves for future judgment is to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. To admit that you're a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life and commit your way to following him. If you'd like to know more about how to do that, uh, there's a number on the screen. You can text us. You can say, hey, I, I, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing, but, but you're speaking to me. I don't want to face judgment. Tell me how I can trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you're watching online, if you're watching on television, if you're listening on the radio, the number is 336 If you want to know more about trusting in Jesus, don't wait. Find out about how you can have a relationship with him because there's coming a day when you're going to stand before him in judgment. Christian, there's coming a day when you're going to have to stand before him in judgment. Not the same. He's already judged your sin, but he's going to look at your life. You're going to have to give an account for your words and for your behaviors as a follower of Jesus. And maybe even more troubling, we're going to be thinking about all those we could have shared the gospel with. We could have prayed a little bit longer for that did not put their faith and trust in Jesus. We need to prepare ourselves for the coming judgment. Close with this. 
There have been a number of times in my life where I have had moments where I've nearly fallen asleep driving. The, for something, there's something about the, the drone of the car, the hum of the car, an afternoon that, that, that gets me to a place where it's hard to stay awake. But I've only fallen asleep once driving. I was a teenager, 19 or so. I might have been 20 at the time. I was working an internship in Hendersonville at a church. I'd gone home for the weekend to, uh, to, to spend Sunday with my family or spend the weekend with my family. My mom made this fantastic, large Sunday afternoon dinner. I mean, full of carbs, delicious, you know, and I had to get back that evening for a program. And so I got back in the car and I started driving. And between Hickory and Hendersonville, there are two interstates, 26 and 40. And I got to 40, I was on 40 in, in, in the Asheville area, and I was listening to some music. Now, some of you young kids don't know what this is, but I was listening to a cassette tape. That's what, uh, that's what a CD was, that a CD is what an iPad, iPod used to be, and now we don't even have iPods. We have digital music on smartphones. Anyway, a cassette is something way back. It's not as old as a, as a, uh, as a record, though. I didn't listen to records in the car, but I was listening to a cassette tape. And I was listening to a song, Crystal Lewis, People Get Ready, Jesus Is Coming. And I was listening to that song, and it's got a haunting melody. I was listening to that song, and I was thinking about it, and I was full of carbs, and I was driving on the interstate, and all of a sudden, I hear this giant crash, and I wake up, and I had drifted. I was driving a 1991 Honda Civic that had 200,000 miles on it when I bought it for $800, and, and I, it had a natural drift. I drift when I, when I drive sometimes anyway, but it had a natural drift to the right, and by the grace of God, what had happened is I'd fallen asleep and I drifted to the right in one of the places on Interstate 40 that had a guardrail. So I drifted and hit the guardrail and hitting the guardrail woke me up. Thank God I was in the right-hand lane. I didn't hit another vehicle. I didn't drift in oncoming traffic. I didn't hit a tree. I didn't go down an embankment. I just simply drifted hit the guardrail, woke up, scared me to absolute death. I did damage to my car that I never fixed. Of course, why would you fix the damage to a car that you spent $800 on 200,000 miles? But as I, as I think about that story, I think about that song, People Get Ready, Jesus Is Coming. I look back, I've looked back on that day in my life on a number of occasions, and I've thanked God for His grace. I've thanked God for His protection and I don't pray lightly anymore over traveling mercies and traveling safety. Pray seriously over that because God is gracious and, and God can protect us in situations like that. But it's reminded me of this. I don't know when your number is up. I don't know when it is the last chance you'll have to put your faith and trust in Jesus. I don't know when the last time will be that you get to look at that brother or sister, that neighbor or that coworker, and tell them that Jesus loves them and wants to forgive them and cleanse them of their sin. I don't know. But I do know this. Judgment is on its way. And we need to be ready 
for it. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close with a song of invitation. If you feel the need to pray, maybe you've got that person on your list and you just want to take some time and pray for them tonight. The altar will be open. You can do that. Maybe you're sitting in your living room on a Sunday and you got one of those cards or maybe you didn't. You just wrote somebody's name down. Take the invitation time and pray for them. Maybe you're watching or you're listening and you've not trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want to tell you, you do not promise tomorrow. Don't wait another day to get your relationship with Jesus settled and right. Judgment's on its way. We need to make sure we're ready. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this moment. And Lord, we're thankful for your grace, for your intervention. We're thankful that you sent someone to tell us about Jesus. We're thankful that even in this worship service now, through many social media platforms, through audio-visual capabilities, there are lost people that are able to listen to the truth of the gospel. I pray, Lord, for that one or those many that are listening that have not settled their faith. They've not trusted in you as Lord and Savior yet. They've not yet confessed their sin. I pray for their soul and for their salvation. I pray, Lord, that you move in their hearts and make it clear to them that you are holy, that you are full of love, but that you will judge them. I pray that you make it clear, Lord God, that you took their judgment in your own body on the cross 2,000 years ago so that they could be forgiven if they will but trust in you. I pray that you bring them to that relationship, that understanding, that clarity. Pray, Lord, for us as Christians. Lord, help us to fight the fight against sin and wickedness in our own lives. Help us to remember, Lord, that judgment is on its way. One day you will return and you will set all things right. Lord, until that day happens, make us diligent and vigilant with sharing the good news of Jesus, with praying for those who are unsaved, being a witness, with helping people to know that there's a Christ who came to be their Savior and forgiver. We're moving our midst in this worship service. Change our hearts. Draw us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You come and pray if you'd like. You sing, worship God, but you turn yourself over to the one who judges. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.